Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Vaughan Gethin was first elected to the Senate in 2011. However, it did not take Vaughan long to serve in government, being made Deputy Minister for Tackling Poverty only two years after his election. Since then, he has held some of the most senior roles in the Welsh Government, including Minister for Health during the COVID-19 pandemic. And following the 2021 Senate election, Vaughan was made Minister for Economy. Uh, so thank you for joining us, Vaughan. Uh, we want to start a bit at the, you know, the, at the beginning of your political career uh, and what sort of first it made you become involved in politics or what inspired you to get involved in the first place? Well, I got more interested in politics because I inherited the family newspaper. So my two elder brothers had delivered newspapers in our village, and I went from reading the sport pages, the paper my dad bought, which was The Telegraph, to then look at the front pages of a variety of different pages. And I think I said before, there were only a couple of Guardian readers in the village I delivered papers in. They were teachers, and there were a couple of mirrors, and I started to get a bit more engaged in the world around me. It's really from there. And so this is the end of the 80s, start of the 90s. Neil Kinnock's still the leader of the Labour Party. Uh, Margaret Thatcher is still in office. And I went from resenting my father watching the news to being interested in it. And so I just became more and more engaged. And, you know, I grew up in a village in rural West Dorset and joining the Labour Party wasn't a natural thing to do. But it's where my growing awareness of the world around me, the fact that it was unfair, the fact that I was more and more aware of being black in a society where that marked me out as being very different. And I viewed the Labour Party as the best vehicle for social justice in the country. It's the reason why I joined, the reason why I got active. And, you know, the framing of the Labour Party as a vehicle for social justice was very much the language that Kinnock and John Smith were using at the time. And that made sense to me. Um, it's also, of course, a time for generally younger people like yourself, Matthew. Nelson Mandela was still in jail when I started getting interested in politics. And so I, I distinctly remember him leaving jail and then winning the first free and fair elections in South Africa. So all those things happened in the period of my teenage um, lifestyle. And I voted for the first time in the 92 election. I broke off from my paper round to go and vote in the village hall and I voted for the unsuccessful Labour candidate in Dorset West. But I believed I was happy doing the right thing. But the other thing that, that election taught me was never be complacent about where you are. Never take it for granted that how you feel is how the country feels. I think Britain would have been better for having a Labour government at that time. It isn't what happened. But it did make me think that what I want to do with both my life and how I saw things about, you know, right and wrong and why I joined the Labour Party, I still wanted to be involved. But I, at that point... Getting involved in politics as a career wasn't really the deal for me. I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I wanted to be a barrister, ended up being a solicitor in the end. Um, but I got very interested in labour law, employment law, rights at work. And that's what I ended up doing for 10 years as well. And all those things saw me go further and further into the labour, joining a trade union. I was active in the GMB and MSF, as it then was, um, as a student. And that became Unite. And I was a GMB steward in the workplace. So all those things from starting to deliver the village paper and being more aware of who you are in a world where you know people that look like me tended not to get on and achieve what they could and should do even more so than now joining the labor party at age of 17 and voting the first time in the village hall and now here we sit now in a slightly different position i can, I can you know i can agree with you on one thing having got quite a lot of family in dorset it isn't the most guardian friendly area 
No, well, Toll Puddle is in the Dorset West constituency, yeah, and some people and trade units <laughs> haven't moved on very much, frankly. You get a giant labour movement event there in what is not very labour-friendly territory. Yeah. Well, on the trade unions, obviously you spent time as the, the president of the CUC in Wales. What sort of grounding that's given you in, in, in terms of your, your future political career and working in, in government, obviously, especially in your, your current role as Minister for Economy? I was really lucky in that um, there are people I met in the trade union movement who were interested in getting younger people involved in the movement. So uh, Terry Thomas, who previously was a leader in the South Wales NUM, uh, he joined the GMB and he was the regional political officer. And uh, Mike Payne, who was my first election agent running for the constituency, and he's still very much a figure in Welsh play movement politics today, they really encouraged me, and not just me, but a range of other people. One of the other people who was involved in around Young Labour was um, uh, um, a man called Andrew Morgan, who I think has gone on to do something in local government in Wales as well. Uh, and so there were a range of people who got interested and involved, and the trade unions were part of that as well as the party. And so when I had opportunities to, to think about work, I was really fortunate in that being the president of NUS Wales, and, you know, it's says something about the the movement more generally, but it was 40 years in and I was the first black person to be president of NUS Wales. So, you know, progress is not always straightforward, in, even in areas you think are progressive. I met regularly at a trade union and Labour Party event. One of them was McAntonive. Another one was uh, Joanna Stevens, now normally known as Joe. And so I, I ended up doing a summer's worth of work experience at Thompson's and I was then offered a training contract. So I was active in the GMB as a young members activist. I then joined Thompson Solicitors, which I was very positive at doing because I knew they were a labour movement law firm. And I really wanted to be an employment lawyer. And so I got opportunities to do all of those things. And I was the GMB rep in the workplace too. So, you know, my working life, my views on politics, and then actually meeting lots of the people that you thought politics should be for and understanding lots how trade unions worked. And and that, and my continued involvement in the GMB did eventually lead me to be the president of the Wales TUC. And in that, you saw needing to work and build coalitions within and across trade units to try and get something done. Uh, the start of devolution and looking to work with a Labour government to have a different model of what's available, including during a period of my time as a president, the big financial crash, uh, and having to work with the CBI as well as the government to do things to try to help support businesses and jobs. And as a trade union lawyer, representing the entire span of the world of work, you know, from senior officers, including chief executives in large third sector and local government organisations, senior employees in the private sector, uh, as well as, you know, school dinner ladies and people who work on production lines. You know, there was a whole range of the world of work the people you represented, and the trade union officers as well. And it's all the things about how life keeps on moving forward. I was always fascinated as you found out more about trade union officers and why they'd become members, whether they're in their branches or the full-time paid officials. And, you know, really interesting life and working stories themselves. And one of those trade union officers that I worked with uh, is still part of my working life because Dawn Bowden was a senior organiser at Unison. And when I was a lawyer at Thompson's, she was someone that I worked with who would give instructions on cases they wanted us to assess and to undertake. So you really were very involved with the direct sharp end of part of what trade unions have to do and understanding how this is part of what they do 
for their members. So um, it has given me a healthy respect for trade union members, officers at local level within branch to keep the whole thing running, as well as the work that our full-time officers have to do as well. And somewhere along the line, you occasionally need a lawyer. Once you were elected in 2011, it didn't take you too long uh, before you entered government, but then didn't take you too much longer still to become Minister for Health. And obviously you were... You, you had no idea when you took that role that you would be one of the health ministers in the UK during a once in a century pandemic, but thankfully not the one on not the one who went on I'm a celebrity. But how would you describe the experience of being a health minister, just both in general, but especially during the pandemic? Well, it's funny because I really enjoyed being a lawyer and working with all those people and getting results for your clients, and that can make a really big difference to that person. But you're making a difference for the client you're representing, and occasionally you get to change the law in an area. And the frustration was that actually you could and should be able to do more in the country. That's why I stood for election. You know, there was an opportunity to stand, and my time in local government as a councillor made me think if I could do that full time and not have to balance work and being elected as I'd want to do that. And then once you get into the, the assembly, as it then was, seeing people up close and, you know, wanting to do more. So on committees, I was committee chair briefly, and then the opportunity came to serve in the government. And you know, it's still odd that it's the first person of colour in any devolved government to be a minister. And, you know, I hadn't been thirsting to get involved in the health department as the area where I really wanted to be. And then, because it was a, the reshuffle after I'd come into government, and, you know, it was partly because the then health minister had indicated that there was to be a change he'd be interested in working with me and that was very helpful and positive so I got to work with Mark and you know I was I think it's more to at the time has been the deputy minister for health first because I came in essentially as the the minister for bad news you know in terms of where we were on a range of our targets and looking to get on top of NHS performance uh, and find a way through and so that was hard and getting used to a really big sprawling brief and having to do that whilst, you know, our son had been born uh, and so, you know, not sleeping well and having a change in job that was really demanding. And then by the time there'd been another election to then do the cabinet role, I felt much better prepared for that because I'd had to learn so much about the service and I knew lots of the people. I never anticipated there being the sort of pandemic there was. I was involved in this Operation Cygnus, which was the uh, flu preparation exercise, which has been, there's obviously been some interest in when Jeremy Hunt was still the UK Health Minister, Health Secretary. And I was pretty shocked by some of the attitudes of conservative politicians who took part in that. And um, so some of the attitudes in the pandemic weren't a surprise, even when things were that appallingly serious. Nothing really prepares you, though for the scale and the level of decision-making that we had to deal with and very quickly had to get used to. From the warnings in January, but the warnings in January also noted that previous significant viral events had not come to the UK in such devastating numbers. So, you know, from swine flu to SARS and MERS that had existed before, they'd never really hit the UK. And so there was a bit of, are we going to dodge the bullet again? And then it became clear that there would be an impact. How serious will it really be? And then paying even more attention to there, there does not appear to be a cure. And this is not a mild and moderate illness for lots of people. 
So for most people, it would be the great majority. And it's what happened, isn't it? For most of us who have had COVID, we haven't ended up being ill enough to need medical treatment. The problem is, because it was so prolific at spreading, that actually in a whole population, a small percentage of people uh, is actually a very large volume of people. And as we know, if we had not changed the way our health system ran, it would have overwhelmed it. And, you know, having to think through and then to make choices around what do you do if the reasonable worst case scenario happens? And then every, every grade below that is still a giant problem. So I think one of the most striking points in the pandemic, probably the two that I think really stand out about how serious it was, was when I made the decision standing next to both, uh, and we announced it standing next to both Mark and Andrew Goodall, who was the chief executive of NHS Wales at the time, that we were going to significantly reduce NHS activity. That that decision in the middle of March, just before, you know, a week or so before we went into lockdown, it was 10 days. That was because at that point, we knew something was coming that you couldn't keep on running everything else with. And that was really hard. But it was a really big signal. This is going to be very serious. And then we were still debating about whilst lockdowns, whether those would happen, whether we'd have a UK decision. And then once the joint decision was made that we would all do broadly the same thing, it was this is a massive intervention into people's lives. And I still don't think that elected members really understood how significant it would be until, I don't know if you remember this, but I do. I had a cough. My son had had a cough. And so the advice then was, you've got a cough, stay away, get tested, make sure you're okay. And so I didn't go in and I was due to actually make a statement in the chamber about um, the pandemic and all what it could mean. And Mark ended up making it from the, the, the speech that I'd written and prepared. And my IT failed to so Mark had to make the speech. And um, it was really serious. And I think it was a, a day or two afterwards, it was certainly early on, I was at the health committee remotely again. And there was a question about how serious you get. And I pointed out that what the reasonable worst case scenario meant wasn't just large numbers of people who would die. It would mean that individual burial probably wouldn't be possible. If you think about that, in 21st century Britain, 21st century Wales, you wouldn't be able to bury people individually. You might have to collectively bury people. So that was one of the things we were actually thinking, well, is this somewhere we might get to? And we're having to plan for that possibility. And as it happens, there were significant restrictions on those, you know, all the, the pain and the misery for people who, who lost someone and not being able to grieve and mourn for them in a, in a usual way, not being able to hold hands to hug each other, having really restricted numbers of people there. In the first, in February, the start of February, I don't think we really contemplated that's where we'd end up. Uh, and then as we get through the first phase and all these things are happening, yeah because you haven't got a vaccine and then all the evidence is telling you that whilst the summer relaxations are a real positive, you're probably going to have to do something like this again, at least through autumn or winter. That wasn't easy. Obviously you had this incredibly difficult period as health minister during the pandemic. And then, then you moved into the economy role, which has also been hugely affected by the consequences of the pandemic. You, we've also had to deal with Brexit and the confusion over replacement EU funds. Then you've had also the financial decisions of the UK government. That's all been piling pressure on the Welsh finances. How concerned are you about the state of the Welsh economy and, and what are the Welsh government trying to do to to to, to keep it keep it going really? Well look, I there are obviously very real concerns. You know, the OBR and the Bank of England both predict we'll have a recession for pretty much the next year. 
they differ slightly in the depth of it, but either way, there'll be significant impacts that'll be felt unevenly in different sectors of the economy, but a number of people will lose their jobs. And so we'll have a challenge in how we're able to respond to that effectively. But it comes on the back of you know pandemic recovery that actually Wales recovered earlier than other parts of the UK. We went back to pre-pandemic size before other parts of the UK. And at that point, we were relatively optimistic. We had the difficulty of the Omicron wave about 12 months ago. It isn't just the Russian invasion of Ukraine that has upset that balance. The realities of our new trading relationships with Europe are a real factor in all of this. And every, every week, it appears there is another report that spells out the difficulties in trade, what it means for growth, what it means for inflation in food terms, for example. You know, it really has driven up costs. So the promises there'll be cheaper energy and cheaper food are ringing hollow against the reality of what we're all having to live through. And that isn't felt evenly. I'm paying more for my food, but I'm in a different position to most of my constituents. Uh, so people's resilience at the end of the pandemic is in a very, very different place. Uh, and I'm generally concerned about the future of the economy and what that means for individuals, families and communities. The fact that the UK government have also chosen to take money out of the economy and to act in a way that is, you know, frankly, picking a fight with devolved government is really unhelpful. I mean... The confusion about EU replacement monies isn't really a point of confusion. The UK government have very clearly not replaced all of the money on a like-for-like -like basis, and it has lost more of its value because of the realities of inflation, and they have plainly decided to transgress plainly and egregiously into areas that are plainly devolved. The multiplier programme for adult numeracy, that is plainly a devolved function, all the areas of skills that I am dealing with plainly devolved and to deliberately do that in a way that completely bypasses not just the Welsh government but the Senate as well. You know, We have made these decisions through all of the period of devolution until now and the Senate has always been in a position to scrutinise us and to make recommendations and to hold us to account as they have done. There have been quite uncomfortable days for Welsh ministers explaining what's happened um, but actually, I think that process led to a better approach to European funding at the end of the last cycle. And we've gone from learning and having a more strategic approach to how we want to use those European funds to now having a much more dispersed view of how to use the money um, that gets us back to where we were in the first and second rounds of European funding. And when the Senate told us very clearly on a cross-party basis, this isn't the most effective use of the money. And that's really unhelpful for the recovery we want for investing in the future of people and the economy. So I'm afraid that all of those choices, frankly, about where power lies and wanting to be able to hold the ring on things that doesn't necessarily make sense in a pragmatic way, those are choices the UK government have made. And Rishi Sunak is very much the middle of all of those. He made a number of these choices directly himself as the Chancellor. They, I think, put us in a weaker position when you look at our potential recovery, the potential harm that would be caused. And, you know, I also get the fortunate chance to be the minister in the Welsh government dealing with borders policy as well. So, yeah, from health minister in the pandemic to the economy minister in a recession that'll last a year and the very real challenges uh, of borders and trade policy with the UK. And this is bizarre, isn't it? You know, 20 years ago, you'd have taken the view that Conservatives would have been ultra-pragmatic about business and trade. And actually, they're now in a very ideological position where there's a faith-based approach to the economy in these big, important areas. And it refuses to take account of practical reality. And what virtually every business group and every serious economist is saying in terms of the damage done to our trading relationships and what we actually need to do to help us navigate a better path for the future.
I mean, it is looking increasingly likely that there will be a, a Labour-led government in Westminster, which will overlap with uh, at least part of this Senate term. What do you I certainly th- hope so. <laughs> what do you think that would mean for Wales, Vaughan? Well, I hope it'll mean a much more grown-up conversation with reliable partners, people where we don't just not have a contest of values, but actually we can get somewhere much more sensible around the respect and stability for the powers that we have after two devolution referenda and six different elections, and actually wanting to have a settlement for the future that isn't constantly down to a fight that looks like it's politicians arguing who's more important, rather than what you do with the share of powers you've got. And, you know, the the UK Labour Party and a range of things it's done. So the Brown, the Gordon Brown Commission, with its publication this week, but even before then, if you look at uh, the draft industrial strategy that the UK party launched at conference in the autumn, it recognised that actually you needed to have a sharing of power. And it pointed out two examples of where this works more effectively, somewhere like Germany in Europe, where there's a clear understanding of what the federal government has in Germany, and then what each of the land of the states in Germany have as well. And I do think some clarity on that really matters, because you've got to be able to have some things that aren't all driven by the centre. What would not work is if you had a UK Labour government that determined that actually the right path now is to keep all the powers in the centre, but everything will be better because they're Labour ministers, not Tories. That's not going to work. That isn't what the UK party set out in the industrial strategy, and it isn't what Gordon Brown set out in his report either. So having clarity on how power is shared and stability and respect for how power is shared would be really important. And I think would allow a different set of choices about being prepared to invest in the future. Um, so. You know, it isn't just about wanting my team to win. I actually think it's hugely important for our economic future. And a Labour government, I think, is essential to the future of the union. Well, Vaughan, with all these pressures, various pressures, the health pressures, the economic pressures, the pressures on schools, some would say it would be quite hard for any government to deliver uh, a, a successful remainder of their term, but especially one with not all the levers available to them like a devolved government. But what can we expect to see from the Labour government for the remainder of this Senate term? Um, and how much do you think that's been impacted by or, or, or potentially improved by the cooperation agreement with Plaid Cymru? Well, what the cooperation agreement with Plaid Cymru does is it gives us stability in a range of areas. And, you know, for some of those things, you need a large majority. So counter tax reform and Senate reform are the obvious examples. The cooperation agreement isn't all plain sailing. And, you know, there are very real debates and discussions that happen uh, and trying to keep us all on track for what we agreed in that agreement. And this week, of course, um, there was a robust exchange of views between the leader of Plaid Cymru and Mark Drakeford. So it does show that in areas outside the cooperation, we're very, very comfortable about setting out our alternative stalls and why we think that our vision is the preferable one. So it certainly hasn't ended political debate far from it. I do think, though, that the shifting picture since the, the last Senate election, the reduction in our levers available to us and the overall reduction in money, it isn't even as if more money is being spent, it's just that we're not making all the choices. There's less money available to Wales overall in real terms. Those will have a real impact, I think, on what we're able to do in the programme for government. So we're having difficult conversations about the future of the programme for government, around what we're able to do and the budget. So the budget comes next week. And, you know, before the autumn statement, the second autumn statement, we thought the real terms value of our budget would shrink by about £4 billion over the spending review. We now think it'll be closer to £3 billion. But actually, you can't just take out £3 billion in real-term spend and it have no impact on what you're doing. So... 
What I do think you've seen throughout our time leading the Welsh government is you've seen us keep our promises and you've seen us explain what we're doing if we're having to do something different. And I think you'll see more of that. And I still think at the end of this term, you'll have seen a government that has been straight with people about what we've done, straight about what we think the future challenges are and how we're going to address them. And a set of values that I think are in tune with the great majority of the people of Wales. Celebrating Labour's centre is a dominant party in Wales. There have been some rather um, being damned with faint praise. I think there is um, there is someone who said, it helps that you're not the Tories. And I say, yeah, well, actually, there might be an anti-Tory majority in Wales, but you have to work hard to gain votes. And actually, we've seen in recent times, there are plenty of people who are prepared to support the Tories under the right circumstances as well. The fact that we are a pro-devolution party who is very proud of being Welsh, there is no conflict between being Welsh and very proud and voting Welsh Labour is a strength, but also that we're positive about the future of Britain in a reformed union. And actually, it isn't just that the people of Wales have shaped our values, it's the other way around as well. I think Welsh Labour shaped the values of the people of Wales in the last two decades, but in the last century as well. So it's a relationship that, that goes in more than one direction, I think, maintaining that is key to our future success together with you know delivery and decency and integrity in the way we go about our politics but constantly being prepared to listen and to learn and that's one of the things about leadership sometimes you have to set up this is what i we think we should do and there are other times you need to be responsive and listening and every now and again politicians should be prepared to stop talking and listen to what other people have to say before they make decisions Horn, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for your time uh, and we'd love to have you on in the future but thank you so much again no problem at all take care if you enjoy what you've heard this evening please don't forget to find us on twitter and facebook at here I pod or go to our website www.walespolitics.com we thank you very much for supporting us with your ears but if you would like to do so with your wallets you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash here pod thank you for listening to here if you like what you heard please don't forget to subscribe rate and review